This is the Food About Town podcast. I'm Chris Lindstrom, and I'm your host. This week's episode is brought to you by the Over Dinner podcast, hosted by my friends Michelle and Carlette, where they talk about dating and all the issues surrounding that. Their podcast is recorded at the Food About Town studio, so if you're looking to record your own podcast, reach out to me on social media or at foodabouttown at gmail.com. Thanks for sticking with me for over the last couple of quiet weeks. And we're back with episode 44 with Kristen Ortiz from Joe Bean Coffee and Phil Bianchi from Headwater Food Hub. Uh, we talked a lot about farm-to-table cooking. We talked about the food program at Joe Bean. And, of course, we dove into the histories of both Kristen and Phil to see why they're doing what they're doing. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share out this episode on social media or give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. Rochester winter slash spring environment we found ourselves in. It's early March and it's 50 degrees outside. Awesome. And <laughs> all the snow is gone. So <laughs> this is one of the weirdest Rochester winters on record. And slash best. Slash best. <laughs> and I'm here with two people with some connections, but different areas of expertise possibly. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Kristen. Uh, I work at Joe Bean Coffee Roasters. I run the food program there. And I'm Phil Bianchi from Headwater Food Hub. I'm the wholesale director. Uh, working, working Why don't you square yourself up to the mic there, sir? Squaring hard. All right. Food, <laughs> uh, Headwater Food Hub, wholesale director, um, connecting local chefs like Kristen here with great local producers in the area. Beautiful. So before we started, and we're going off on a tangent already, we were talking about some uh, long-form podcast stuff, which, I mean, I find fascinating. It's kind of why I do this. Instead yeah. of some of the more cut-down, polished things, I like uh, long-form conversations. I'm definitely a podcast junkie. Yeah? I love them. I listen to a lot, well, like you were saying, This American Life. But I like a lot of the shows, too. Like, um... Ask me another. Do you listen to that one? No, it's where, where's awesome. that from? It's uh, ooh, is it NPR? I think it is also NPR. It's like a kind of comedy trivia. It's okay. pretty hilarious. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Any podcasts on your side there? Well, I'm gonna go with Food About Town to start here. Oh, look at that. <laughs> already. This is fantastic. Love no, it. No. Well, college days, uh, I will say, you know, three years ago, four years ago, it was all about um, it started with Joe Rogan and the Holy Trinity over there with those. Oh, guys. absolutely. Long format all day. I mean, that is long format. <laughs> yes, that's sir. what they do when it's three plus hours with one guest. Yep. No breaks. 
<laughs> I mean, that's the essence of long format. And helps you wade through the BS with someone as well. Oh, absolutely. You, you can't avoid getting into everything with somebody, especially guys on two, three, four, five times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't listen as much as I used to, but it, it really is an enlightening way to, oh, you can have a real conversation. And if it's good or if it's real, it doesn't matter how long it is. People are going to tune in. Yeah. And, and the great part about him is he can pull some amazing guests. So astrophysicists, you're talking beautiful and amazing farmers, really game changers in every industry. He's able to pull those big names, which I love. So, yeah, nowadays I cherry pick for the most part. Yeah, it's hard because he's doing three, four a week at three hours long. Yep. But, and I'm going to keep going on the tangent here for a second. It's been really interesting recently to see what he's been doing with um, hunted game meat. Exactly. Which has been you know, sort of controversial on his side, you know, hunted game meat. He's eating meat in a pretty large quantity, but he's hunting and he's either hunting or buying from, I don't know where he's buying from, but it looks like he's hunting most of his stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, his goal, his goal, and, and I may be slightly wrong on this, is to hunt or know it's ethically raised all of his meat. Um, moving forward. Uh, he made a des- the decision, as far as I understand, that once he um, he went hunting for the first time, he was either going to turn vegan or become a hunter. Uh, and he went with the hunter route. Which I really it's respect. Yeah, I mean, I respect that. If you're, sure. if you're going to eat meat, mm. and something I really want to explore more, and actually I might ask some help on this from you. You got it. Um, <laughs> I want to go, I want to see the process. I want to be in, I want to know what's going on more actively. Yeah. Now I grew up in a hunting household. Now my dad was a hunter, you know, I've been involved somewhat. Mm. I didn't go hunting myself, but you know, sometimes he brought it back and we had to we had to process, we had to exactly. to gut, we had to do everything. We were involved in the process. Mm. But from a I don't want to say a commercial sense because it is a commercial environment that you work in to a point. Yep. Um I, I'm not I'm not really involved directly. Yeah. I know some of the farmers. I tend to believe when, when they say they're doing good things, but I've never been to their places. I can't say for certainty what they're doing. Right. And um, and honestly, a lot of chefs feel that way as well. Um, they want to do what they're doing, which is be a chef. They're busy most of the time. Um, and part of the reason why the food hub and one of our selling points is, hey, we know these farmers. We bring you straight to the farm. Right. Um, I was g- gonna say, yeah, that's why we have Phil. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. So, let's start there, and we're not ignoring Kristen, but let let let's start let's start <laughs> there because we ended up going in this direction. Um, so, what what is Headwater Food Hub? And obviously, you're the you said that you're the wholesale part of the business, but what what is Headwater Food Hub? Yeah, so Headwater Food Hub, um, the the, the one-liner is we aggregate, market, and distribute um, for a network of our partner farms. Um, What food hubs essentially are trying to do uh, is is give outlets for local, small to medium-sized farmers, um, trying to give them outlets for for their produce and wares beyond your traditional markets, um, like like one or two cases of this or that to a chef, or uh, down at the market, Rochester Public Market being a great example. Uh, our job is to really create a difference and move volumes for these small to medium-sized farmers as they want to um, take on more business and, and grow their business as well. So, so you allow 
you're kind of the the allowance of a farmer to specialize to a point as well, right? Yeah, so we go through a lot of crop planning um, and crop scheduling, and a big piece of that, and we talk to Kristen this time of the year to see what kind of crop she wants to have on her menu for, for the next growing season. But what we do is we say, hey, what do you set up to grow? What do you like to grow? What do you grow the best of? And can we dial that in to get you a great institutional buyer um, like a Kristen or even a University of Rochester? How can we really make a difference in your in your in your budgets at, in your your growing season at the end of the year? So it's not only flexibility; it's flexibility for some a buyer like Joe Bean, of course. But it's it seems like in one of the points I was getting at is kind of flexibility for the farmer to grow what's best for their place. They don't have to diversify and sell everything while they're still contributing to a diverse local product. Exactly. We have guys that just do garlic for us, Um, honey, maple syrup. Uh, You're able to specialize and do certain things. And if you can find um, a food hub or a nearby business that's willing to help you move into bigger markets, it only makes sense for you to to go after that. Right. So I'm going to use an example. So I can say Fisher Hill Farms. Phil Munson. Phil Munson, (laughs) a guy who I... I respect, I believe he's doing a very good job of what he does. Yes. I've never been to his farm, but again, I see, I trust him based on meeting him and having talks with him. He's a diverse farmer. He can offer a CSA like product because he grows, he does animals. He does Mm -hmm. all sorts of vegetables, all sorts of things. Not every piece of land is suited to do a whole assortment of things. Although in a lot of ways it is beneficial to be a diverse farmstead. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, we're not going to go too deep into the Michael Pollan side of things here. <laughs> we could, we could, we, we could, but you know, somewhere like that, he's a diverse farmer. But then, like you said, you've got your garlic farmers, you've got your other places. Yeah, definitely. Um, and they're all together. They're all together. Hub. Ultimately, working together to, to yeah. feed a community. Um, you know, we like to say. Back in the day, you used to build a community around a farm or a central place to get your food. Nowadays, our communities are so big that you have to, you know, pepper farms throughout and then feed a community. So I have a network of farms that are that are doing that work. And, and that's part of the model that we're trying to accomplish. But at the same time, building a more regional food system, not just your city or local food system. So there's a bigger piece to that coming in. Mm-hmm. So, Kristen, what, what does that mean to you to have somewhere where you can go that's, I'm going to compare it generically to a, and this is obviously a way, way wrong comparison, but it's a, it's a Cisco-like place where you can go and say, hey, I want, oh. and I know, it's it's not Cisco. <laughs> but it's Such a it's, sad word. <laughs> I know it is. But it's a one-stop shop where you can go and say, hey, you are working with the farmers, but you don't have to go to 20 different farmers exactly. to get a product. You can go to one place exactly, and then sort of as an intermediary to get to all these different great products. Right. What, what, what does that mean to you from well, a, from it's a incredible. chef's perspective? Yeah, it's incredible because uh, you buy local from one place. Like you were saying, Phil has, the, the Food Hub has those relationships with the farmers. And so... Uh, he lets me know what's available, what's being picked this week, and it does most of the work for me. And I get to see, like, oh, my gosh, I, I can get this, this, and this this week. And uh, it actually also does most of the work for a seasonal menu, you know, because if they're not picking it, if he doesn't have a farmer who's 
growing it or harvesting it this week, uh, then it's not available in Rochester. And so it's not on our menu, which uh, is really exciting to me because it is, you know, the definition of eating, cooking, um, being local, you know, being in your community. Well, let's go into that because that's <laughs> that's obviously been a focus for for Joe Bean since they started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but having those relationships for having, sure, having the local relationships, but now moving into a expanded food program, right? That you've been a big part of. <laughs> it's been awesome. Let's let's talk a little bit about what the food program is at Joe Bean right now and. Maybe sure. some ideas of where it's going. Yeah, sure. Well, right now, uh, you know, we've been expanding what we offer through the day as far as snacks, market build, sandwiches, salads. And then, um, as you know, we've been doing brunch uh, since the fall. And um, we just expanded doing happy hour offerings. And so we want to continue in that and just kind of get bigger as we can manage it um, and offer more as we can manage it. Um, we're definitely focused on seasonal and local eating. So, um, you know, one of those buzz phrases that gets thrown around a lot is farm to table. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to call it, it's hard to call it buzzy at this point really because it's, I know it is, but when you're a local focused business, you're not, it shouldn't be a buzzword at this point. Okay. I mean, for me, it's, it shouldn't be a buzzword that is something you really should be doing. Right. Well, I guess when I say a buzzword, I think it's, I'm thinking more of like, uh, it's a phrase that people talk about a lot and sometimes they don't maybe get exactly what that is. Maybe, I don't know. Um, Almost like it's overused, greenwashed in a sense. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's talked about a lot and people are advertising it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's advertised to the point where it's it is annoying. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes it's pushed so much where it gets over the top. Yeah. But it is an important thing, and sometimes it's actually now there's businesses that are realizing that. And I'm gonna throw out an example: um, the new Playhouse Swill Burger. Mm. They source a lot of local products yes, through Headwater Food <laughs> Hub. Oh yeah. Um, I've seen the sacks of potatoes being carried in. <laughs> we love those sacks of potatoes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sacks of local potatoes, mm. and they're selling a lot of potatoes right now. It's a busy place. They only have one thing in their whole place that says local. You know, they're not pushing that it's a farm-to-table hamburger restaurant. And I, and I totally support Brian in, in that sense. Uh, I think it's, it's unique. I think his stance is that, you know, it should be that way. You know, we should be buying local. Of course I am. Right. Of course it's not in your face because that's right. the way that the food system actually should work. Yeah. Yeah, just like what you said. Right. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But that's the balance that it's I think is kinda hard to strike nowadays, whether you're pushing in, you're putting in people's faces, mm. uh, or you're doing you're educating. You're telling people, Hey, this is from this farm, this is from this great place mm -hmm. or you're highlighting one or two places. Or you're kind of just letting it be what it is. And if somebody asks, you can tell them, oh, hey, yeah. I get my potatoes from Headwater Foods. And we would encourage you bypass our name specifically and say, hey, Williams Farm, right. Old Ridge Farm, uh, Mason Farm, 
Fisher Hill Farm. That's right. what we would rather, you said. Yes, we are a food hub, and we're part of this whole system, but we'd like to be rather invisible, um, not in the sense that we're trying to build relationships with local chefs, processors, butchers, you name it, um, but at the end of the day, we want these farms to be able to build a brand for themselves as well. That's the biggest, that's the biggest piece. Right. So, which I, I do appreciate, because mm-hmm. it's when you are a, you know, uh, an aggregator, in a sense. Yep. Now, a curator as well, a curator and an aggregator, because you're helping, I mean, you're helping the farmers in a lot of ways know what to sell because you know the marketplace. You know the marketplace. You know what people want to buy. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I appreciate that. You're trying to give credit to the farmers because they're doing a lot of the hard work here. They're doing a lot of the hard work, and a lot of these farmers, they're not just farmers. They're soil scientists. They're very smart individuals. Some of, the, some of these farmers, this is their second career. Uh, they're, they're trying to make a go for it in farming. Um, even we have Cornell here in, in our backyard. Uh, there's a lot of smart people doing a lot of wonderful things on the land uh, that, you know, our society doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say maybe they take it for granted because we've been so disconnected with what's been getting to our plate. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. And, you know, the more, obviously, the more processed, the more disconnected you get with things, which is one of the reasons I've been, you know, pretty happy with the direction of the Jovian Food Program is it's a, you know, lightly processed, it's a lightly processed menu, which is a very good thing. Well, I think that we're definitely striving for exactly what Phil was just saying, like bringing awareness of how and where the food on your plate came from Um, that we're excited about having relationships with these farmers through headwater to be able to bring things that are growing right down the street. And it's really awesome, you know, to be able to do that here in Rochester. Right. And you, what you mentioned before was also the seasonality of the food you're making. So you've been at Jobine for how long now? Uh, Since last summer. Okay, yeah. so you've already gone through a couple seasons here in Rochester. Yeah, I'm man. I'm excited for spring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, spring's spring's really the, ex, the probably the most exciting season we get in, in the northern part of the country, especially in upstate New York. I mean, the there, there's nothing quite like when all the first greens and the light, you know, the white onions and things start coming yeah. out. It's, oh my gosh. It just makes for such exciting, vibrant food. Seriously. And that's why, like, it's a little sad when people are really wanting to get food that, you know, like, a, we were just in McCann's. And we were. We were. <laughs> and um, I was talking to one of the guys there about, you know, seasonal eating. And he, we were saying how, you know, people wanting tomatoes right now. It's like, oh, why do you want a tomato right now? Like, wait, just wait. It's coming and it's going to be the best tomato you've ever had. And it grew right down the street from you instead of, you know, trying to find it in a grocery store that it was shipped from yeah. a million mi- miles away, you know? And most likely gassed on the way, picked when it wasn't ripe. Right. Um, it just, it's just at all, at the, at the end of the day, you, you don't get a tomato. You get something that's trying to be a tomato. Right. Um, so if, if I have a chef that asks me for a tomato, we'll say in, j- in January or December, um, you know, I shake my head and say, I'll talk to you at the end of July. I'm not your <laughs> tomato guy right now. Just, it's just that simple. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not sure there's anything more depressing than an out of season tomato. Exactly. Seriously. Now it's it's something that people still want. People still buy. People mm-hmm. still get. But, I, I, bad tomatoes. When you've had good tomatoes, 
Exactly. It's, the same with corn. Oh my gosh, corn on the cob is like, I think my favorite food. <laughs> Very close to the top of the list. And it's the same thing when you're getting corn out of season. It's like, oh no, 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 it's not the same. Like in summertime when it, you know, it's freshly picked and it's just the greatest thing in the world, you know. And there's there's something about I I grew up. No, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up in a in a you know agricultural agricultural business. We grew a greenhouse, mm. but every so often we'll sell. We sold corn, and I remember for a while we'd go out picking in the in one of our farmer friends' fields. You go out in the morning. You know it's you know six o'clock in the morning. You're out picking corn. There's nothing quite like taking a piece of corn right off the stalk and eating it raw. Raw, exactly. A raw corn is one of the completely underused <laughs> things because it goes south so fast. Yeah. It's not the same a day later or mm-hmm. two days later when it's right off or the same day and you're eating it raw. It's just such a, such a dynamic sweet. Mm. The yeah. sugars are right there. Oh, it's, yeah. it's really fantastic. And one of those things that's completely underused. I would agree. I would agree. Um, but Kristen's a rock star when it comes to using uh, local food. <laughs> and when it, when you talk about your seasonal adventure and sure. corn being at its peak ripe, ripeness, um, yeah, she was, was right there <laughs> to grab the first case. So I'll, I'll definitely <laughs> give her props in that realm. She's been she's been using the the, the food that's coming down the pike, and it's it's been wonderful. Well, to, and to all the you. awesome like uh, frozen stuff has right. been getting us through the winter, and that was. We talk a lot about um, at Joe Bean, you know, what it means, what food in Rochester looks like. And, you know, because we have usually harsh winters, um, you know, we (laughs) we've been very lucky this year. Uh, But, you know, preservation is a big part of our food culture. Right. You know, whether it's pickling, canning, freezing when it's first picked. And so we've definitely been taking advantage of a lot of that stuff, too, through to get us through the winter. And so when I see, you know, like frozen sweet corn on the headwater list, I'm like, yes. And it is awesome. You know, um, there, there's a lot of good stuff that kind of got us through those. Yeah. But that's months. actually, that's an interesting story. <laughs> that one right there in particular, just because it's winter sun farms, a processor in the Hudson Valley who with some of our growers in our network, when they have a surplus or a bumper crop at the end of the season, we send it off to the processor so we could create a more year round supply chain for our local chefs. So at this time of the year, they can get frozen sweet corn. So exactly. that's always it's a fun one. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's a really good idea because a lot of that stuff, unfortunately at the end of the season, what do you do with it all? Right. It, one, your prices go way down. Exactly. Because there's a huge glut at the end. When you're talking zucchini or squash or other things, a huge glut at the end of the season. And then, obviously, in January and February, there's We're no craving good corn it. to be gone. Yeah. Right. We want so it. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great way to not only uh, add some value for the farms, because mm-hmm. they can sell at a better price instead of dumping it all right at the end of the season or throwing it away, which is a reality of the situation, unfortunately. Um, I, I really... I really appreciate that idea, and that's a another great way to add some value as a as a food hub instead of you're not just an aggregator, right? And then on the consumer side of things, you get a product that's one more nutrient dense because the IQF process it does a lot for preserving the, the content of of what's coming in your vegetables. So the flavors there, the sugars are are still at that peak ripeness that you would find on a, a brand new ear of corn. It's just it's just a more beautiful product for the consumer too. So so I'm going to ask. So IQF, do a I, quick explanation. There please. you go. <laughs> Individual 
quick frozen. So it's just a method, a um, very expensive method. Uh, that's why we don't see too many processors in this area, uh, but, but a very um, awesome method to, to quick freeze, essentially, uh, produce that, that can handle that, that environment in a freezer for over a year. So it's a, I'm going to do a little expounding. So it is a colder freezing process, but it's usually laid out so everything's individually frozen. Each kernel is frozen by itself. Correct, in a single layer. Single layer on a metal sheet mm. to allow for a quicker freezing heat transfer. Mm. So you get better freezing, faster freezing, smaller crystals, less damage to the product in the end. You got it. So it acts more like fresh corn than it does like the frozen corn you may buy in a grocery store. Mm. Mm-hmm. So sorry, I wanted yeah, to. You should have just went with the with the description right there. That's like <laughs> <it>. great. <laughs> so yes, I have I bought some of that stuff from other farmers, and it's amazing to get corn in the wintertime. Absolutely. Um, so the menu, the brunch has been going well so far, right? It's been really great. It's been really well received, and uh, I'm just excited about you know continuing and uh, the I guess the more challenging part of it has been um, that we're changing the menu so quickly. But again, that a lot of that is because we want it to be seasonal. And um, as things are available, it's, you know, we can do different things. And um, through the winter, it was a little harder. But I feel like, like I said, with spring, I'm like, I'm going to be excited for that fifth week. Like, we get to change again. We get to change it again. Because <laughs> um, there's going to be so many great things to be playing with so yeah so but you know joe beans a and originally designed as a it's a coffee shop first and foremost you're working in a coffee shop environment <laughs> what 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 have been the biggest challenges so far doing what's ostensibly a, a pretty a pretty dynamic brunch service in a yeah, coffee shop environment so far it is, it's been wild i guess the biggest challenge has been um that perception maybe um it's been funny when i come out sometimes with food uh, the people are like whoa what is that like where did that come from or they don't realize that we're doing you know that extensive of a menu um because they're used to going to a place to get coffee and you know a cookie and Mm -hmm. um you know, there's a sandwich that's awesome. But as soon as you do more than that, it's like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) So it's been really cool, like that education piece of it, you know, of um, telling people what we're excited about and, you know, what we're moving into, just expanding this menu. And um, so it's that's been a challenging piece, but also a really fun piece because I get to talk to a lot of people about, you know, the food that I love and, you know, why they should try everything. And and we see a lot of people coming back for that, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, well, now that I know you guys are doing this kind of food, that's cool. I'm going to bring people in. And the same thing with happy hour, you know, um, when people come in for a beer or a coffee or a glass of wine and then they realize they can get that um, awesome quesadilla. Hey, <laughs> that was, oh, man, that's good that stuff. That was amazing. My girlfriend and I were talking about it for days, so. Yes, the pork on the pork. pork. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Double local pork, m- might I add. Hey, oh, yes. <laughs> that does sound delicious. Yep. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's it's been um, really cool to see people, you know, receiving uh, something different and getting excited about, you know, the more that we're doing. So from a creative standpoint, now 
again, people, if you're an outsider and not involved in Joe being as crazily as I am, <laughs> knowing what's going on all the time, um, there's a lot of special events going on at Joe Bean on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. And now a lot of them are involving food pairings and, yes. you know, special events, holidays, all these different things. Yeah. Creatively, how has, how, how has the, the challenge been for you keeping up with all the special events? Yeah, sure. It's been crazy, but um, it's been so much fun. Like I, I tell people I have, a dream job. Like I really do. I have always loved to cook and I've always, you know, I've worked in restaurant industry for a long time and it's really, really fun to be able to have this kind of creative influence and, um, working with Jim Lake is pretty much the greatest. Uh, he is just as creative and excited and passionate about the beer and wine program as I want to be about the food program. And so uh, we do a lot of the collaboration for those events that you're talking about, all the holiday stuff. Um, we we work very closely on that stuff and just uh, doing the pairings and researching things and doing tastings and figuring out what's going to be uh, fun and, you know, forward and, you know, what is going to intrigue people. So it's it's been really cool. <laughs> yeah, which... Yeah, I think that's been one of the interesting things to see it develop. Um, you know, get to get all the opportunities to try all these different things and see the challenges and see, you know, working through all that stuff. Right. It's fascinating for me from a, I don't want to say historical, but, you know, from a an active developing system because it's it's all new. Yeah, yeah. It, But that's, I mean, it's kind of the greatest thing about working for Joe Bean. Like, they encourage it, you mm. know. Um, they're all about exploring, collaboration, you know. Uh, if you're excited about something, let's empower you to do that. Go figure it out. Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really awesome. It's, it's really uh, fun and encouraging, you know, to be completely enabled in what you feel excited and gifted in, uh, you know, and people behind you saying, yeah, let's do that. Let's see how far you can bring this, you know? Yeah. So. No, that's cool. I, I do appreciate that. It's, I, I like having the opportunity to chase what you want to do. Sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's not. Right. But <laughs> get, getting the chance to try. Yeah. And is... you have people around you saying, all right, so that wasn't such a great one. <laughs> we'll try again. We'll try, try something else. But you know, that, that's important, too. You don't want people whitewashing it either. You want people to tell you, hey, we got to fix stuff. This, right. this, You have to keep on improving. There's always improvements to make. I mean, For sure. Regardless of what you're doing, there's always improvements to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah, and from that creativity, I will add, that's where the beautiful things happen. We like to push our chefs. I, I start and say, hey, we're not going to be your main your main people, uh, but I promise at the end of the year, you're going to be better because of it. And Kristen, that's that's part of why, our, after our first conversation, feeling your energy, uh, we want to eat local, we want to use seasonal, I want to talk to you, I want to build a new menu. Uh, it's just, you talk about continuing education for a chef, it, it's right there, is getting involved and getting local. And Kathy and the team that she's building around you guys uh, is just a testament to that so. yeah for sure no it's huge and I, I appreciate that it's it is a partnership and a development you know what you're talking about that that development is happening all the time regardless of how much experience you have you're always learning about some new product coming through you know some farmer developing a new thing and i heard just this year now i don't know if it'll if people will be ready for it next year 
but I, I was trying to lay the groundwork for farmers to cultivate Huitla Coche this year. Interesting. I was I was asking if people had it. So basically, I was asking any corn farmer I could find, do you have any corn fungus? Yeah, it's. Do you a, have any? I will take all of it. I will buy every <laughs> piece you have. I'm not. I'm not versed in it. Uh, I will say, fungus isn't is it my forte? But maybe mm. we can talk to Olga and maybe she can give hey. us an insight into it. <laughs> yeah, because it's. I actually heard there was one or two places that said they might start next year inoculating their own corn to grow corn fungus. Interesting. Man, you're What's serious, the application for it? It's um. You know, it's one of these, um, and I'm not going to say it's exclusive to Mexico, but it is uh, Mexican delicacy. It's uh, huh. it's like a black mushroom-like fungus that grows on corn that turns the kernels into large, like, expanded mushroom-like corn kernels. Mm. So it's got a rich earthiness. It's almost, it's black, rich earthiness with a sweetness from the corn. Mm. And it's a fascinating product. That obviously for years when people get corn fungus, they just throw it away or corn smut. Yeah. They just throw it all away. And in a lot of larger cities, well, now it's being used as a high-end ingredient. In traditional Mexican cuisine? Traditional Mexican cuisine is where it's probably best known. Hmm. Um, But now in higher-end restaurants where people are using things that are thrown away. Of course. People are using food scraps. People are using um, invasive species. Now, people are using wheat coche as a high-end ingredient because, one, it's delicious. And, two, well, it's a product we used to throw away mm. here in America. Yeah. In Mexico, they make it on purpose because people love the stuff. Actually cultivating it. They cultivate it. All right. So there's, I know, I think at least one place was talking about actually inoculating and developing their own for next year, mm. which <laughs> I found so fascinating. I'm so excited. You're to pass that name <laughs> along, so I'll have it. it. It's really cool, and it's one of those things <laughs> I hope people do because, one, in time, it will be more valuable than corn here. Hmm. But it's a matter of who's, who wants to use it, who wants to do interesting things. Like I was saying, new products. You know, that's a kind of thing, as an example, you know, somebody could make that. And hmm. then it needs to be leveraged to chefs and say, hey, there's an opportunity to use something new and different that nobody else is using in Rochester. Yeah, You'd be the first person to use that product here. Yeah, you can make a name for yourself because you're the creative one trying to make something different. Yeah, that's an easy sell for me, Kristen. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> He's already in sales mode. Uh, I like sometimes it. I try to. We wear many hats at Headwater. Sometimes I try to take the sales hat off, but when we're together, sometimes it gets slipped on inadvertently. <laughs> it happens to the well, best was, of us. I was going to ask you if you feel like you do that with some of the stuff from your farms, like you know, selling it or it, you know. Uh, suggesting it and you know saying hey we've got this as far as new new products mm-hmm. well we try to arrange for you know markets before the season um, the last thing we want to do is try to move someone's bumper crop that they didn't have a market for uh, we're good at it uh, we do do it when we need to help out a few of our farmers uh, but you know at the end of the day you know, careful planning to build real businesses for these farmers is, is going to be a key and a foundation to what a food hub should educate a farmer to be. We get a lot of young farmers coming to us, so that's definitely something we would try to steer away from. Um, but we definitely do get the occasional, hey, I've got, you know, 100 pounds of ramps today. Can, can you get rid of them? And um, if they're beautiful and delicious and I know a, a chef that would want them, absolutely. Absolutely. She's yeah. raising her <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, in the springtime, and it, that is a problem because people at the beginning, they're excited about ramps. Yes. When you get to the end, and maybe they're not as pretty, and there's a ton of them, 
Well, what what do you do at the end? And that's that's mm-hmm. right. You're making pastos. Lots of pastos. You're making pastos. You're pickling. Mm-hmm. You're preserving for later in the season. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's you know another great example of a product that is you know is loved here and in many places at the beginning of the season, but at the end when there's you know, you're just getting the stubs. You're just getting the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Can you keep on using it? Can you keep on adding value to the system? Yep. And that's that's where pickling comes into play. Yeah. Yep. yep. So I'm going to change directions here and go into backgrounds a little bit because I like to learn a bit of, a little bit more about people. So, Phil, let's start with you. Where did you come from? How did you get into this kind of a business? Well, I'll start with the. Sh- we'll, we'll go with the short version of this. That's uh, perfect. I definitely, my aunt was one of my largest influences. Well, we'll we'll back up a little bit more. Um, large Italian family, uh, as you could tell, last name Bianchi here. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up in the kitchen. Always gardened. Um, my mother, uh, God bless her, she has always taken me to the markets as a kid. Uh, we've always ate together in large groups, the family, the table, that was just the communal space where we lived um, and, and still do to this day. Started working for my aunt at her catering company um, and uh, started washing dishes and, and cleaning toilets. Ended a few years, few years later, about eight years into it with her uh, being her assistant manager and still finding a way to scrub a toilet or two, but that's just what you do in a small business. Um, And then got into sales after college in the financial sector. That didn't work out too well. Um, I took a job with the Good Food Collective, which was is the retail side of our of our wholesale of our excuse me of our food hub model, uh, the Good Food Collective. I took a a ten dollar an hour job with them. Uh, And the next season, Chris Hartman, our CEO, asked me back to launch the wholesale program because he saw passion, dedication, and someone that wanted to to really make a difference in the local food system. So that's it. See that I, I find that really interesting coming from somebody who you know I had a small business background. Yeah, that uh, willingness to do what it takes. You got to. You've got to. If if one of the reasons you know at the food hub, I can look around and know if someone's going to last based on their willingness to do some of the tasks that they're not going to get recognition for, like sweeping a floor or picking up a piece of plastic that's not, that, that you walk by. It's the simple things that are really going to shine for a new employee, at least in my eyes, is being able to do the, the dirty work. Um, we, we like to work with farmers, so I feel like a lot of it's dirty work. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, someone with heart, someone with passion uh, is someone who I want on my team. We can always teach a skill. Yeah, mm. it's 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 hard to teach that. I can say that that dedication mm. that that you do what you need to do to make things work. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's one of those lost things I think nowadays with specialization. Yes, yes, in but a lot of ways. Small in the small business, like you alluded to, you got to be able to put on all the hats, take off a few when 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 the time is right. But for the most part know that you're going to put five years if you're going to be an entrepreneur living like no one else will. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you're the, when you're the leader and you're still doing all that stuff, Mm. you're setting an example, not only for your employees, but for, for your customers and for everybody else saying, Hey, we're, we're here for everybody. Like you said, Mm -hmm. leader, they're leading the change. They're doing the work. Um, and that's what, as the food hub, we are, we're actually a certified B Corp. So on top of trying to lead some change in local food, um, local for-profit business models as well. It's a big piece of it. Oh, that that's really cool. Yeah, because yeah, that's a, 
not only from the food perspective, but being a example of a local business as well, showing that it's possible to do local business and do it with with ethics and trying to do good things. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that's an important thing too from a from a community perspective. Yeah, everything from from sourcing to what kind of toilet paper you're using gets through that third party audit. So you know, it's it's pretty. It's pretty serious, and, and we don't take it lightly. Uh, we, and we like to l- work with partners on on both ends of our of our business um, that have those same values and that same mission. And that's why we love Joe Bean so much because Kathy, right down to the sustainable sourcing um, to the to how you get your coffee with a smile on your face, uh, the Joe Bean's right there, ready to do it for you. Yeah. So, you know, you said you came from a catering background. What was correct? The- Large scale. Pump out beautiful food, um, but you know Cisco's pulling up to to your door. Sure. Well, yeah. in in that large scale, it's hard to get away from. Right, and it's it's again, it's a small business. You're you're worried about you know feeding your family at the end of the day. Literally, sure. my family was was the one I was supporting there, and it's it it breaks your heart sometimes to to see also how much gets wasted at the end of the day C- in a banquet cater- setting. Yeah, catering is a tough one when it comes to waste because. Broke my heart every yeah. Saturday night at the end of a wedding to see what I had to throw away. It was mm. phenomenal. It really is, and that's you know it's it's a good it's a good use for that word because it really is. It's an it's a weird thing to watch, and we've all seen it if you've been involved in catering or had your own parties mm-hmm. to see. You know, you can't not have enough, right? But at the end of the day, you can't take it all home. You can't reuse it. You have there's no choice in a way for for safety purposes, but God, it's depressing sometimes. Yeah, it's it's one of those yeah. things that's up there. We're always trying to close the loop and in, in, in different settings, but you know, like we said, when we're trying to grow this food system, really looking at the institutional buyers and how they're closing loops, how they're their place in the loop uh, is always something that that we struggle with and try to wrap our heads around. But, um, you know, we get there day by day trying to find new solutions. Um, and there's a lot of schools that are doing great stuff, Meatless Mondays or the the uh, the program that incentivizes you um, throwing out less food. Actually, Allendale Columbia, one of our local school partners, that they do a great job with their farm to school program. At, um, they actually pit each class against each other. So Laura, the food service director, at the end of the the uh, lunch period, she weighs the bag of trash, and and it gets the the kids involved because they they get so excited because now they're against the fifth graders are against the fourth graders and who can win this week and and it's wow. just a beautiful way to get kids involved at an early age uh, and when we can start young that's when I think we're really going to make the difference with with the food system absolutely sure. especially from a farming perspective getting them to understand that this is coming from somewhere it's not just coming from a package right edible education is what we like to call it so <laughs> whether you're doing a, a garden at your school or cutting out ways to to well, cutting out food waste in general. Uh, those are some of the biggest things that, that I wish th- w- is were, were and are in every single school. But one of these days we'll get there. Do you guys get involved with the education part as well? We do. So we, we partner with the uh, with with the Rochester City School District to do some edible education. We've done apple tasting. So we'll bring in four to... 
12 different types of apples, and the kids get to rate on a chart which one was their favorite. Uh, we also did kale chips last year, I believe. Um, but it's a fun little thing that to see kids running around with kale chips, something that they would never have access to or <laughs> see. Um, they may have access to it, but it's probably something that they're not going to necessarily jump and grab off a shelf right off the bat. Um, so it's always fun to see kids get excited about new new produce, new new flavors, new foods, and, and ultimately a new relationship to that food. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, that's that's a, obviously a huge, huge problem nowadays with mm. not only the unavailability of good food in a lot of schools, but just a lack of knowledge on what good food is. Yeah, like you said, we're we're definitely disconnected from our, from our food, and a lot of it's going to come from education from the home. And unfortunately, we're another generation removed from that, where they're not getting that education piece, uh, and it's it's just it trickles down, and ultimately the kids are paying for it, and that's why we see diabetes at the rates that they're at, obesity, the whole deal. And you know, it's unfortunate, but I'd like to see I'd like to see the trend shift a little bit. And I think with ed- edible education and in solid farm to school programs that we're seeing New York State and, and others across the board, the USDA is doing a lot to back farm to school. They've put a flag in the ground. They want to support food hubs. They want to support local food movements. Um Cornell Cooperative Extension is another one that comes to mind when they're really working to, to work with local food. And there's a lot going on, and I think the whole atmosphere is changing for the better. And I'm excited to be there and, and ride this paradigm shift, if you will. Sure. It's mm. exciting. Yeah, I mean, it has to be. I mean, I I love the fact that you're you're right there. You're on the front lines of it. Yep. Um, and as you mentioned, I think that's a it's a good point that you mentioned before that the Cornell Cooperative Extension is available for a lot of people, and I think it's one of these things that we kind of take a little bit for granted here in the upstate, how great a resource that actually Absolutely. is. We, we're on the phone with those guys three times a week. Uh, if it's not an email, a phone call, um, they are such a great resource. When you were talking with uh, Michael Warren Thomas, I believe, talking about wine. I was. He alluded to that, to that, you know that they're there, that resource, it's amazing. This area could be a hotbed, and in a sense is, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the land use, the natural resources are just astounding. And having Cornell there as an education resource to really couple these things together. Um, and then with the new article that came out with Wegmans even in the last day or so, uh, it's just amazing what this area could potentially be. I think the word was the Silicon Valley of food potentially. Um, something like that. that gets me so excited. <laughs> it gets me it gets me a little bit excited. It gets me a little cringy because <laughs> they're always we, trying to come up with a new with a new this of this kind of thing. But <laughs> but the point's right. The point's right. We are we have a, we're a great agricultural area, mm-hmm. and our biodiversity, the kind of things we can grow, as well as anywhere in the country, is it's really it's a fascinating place to look into from agriculture. It absolutely is, yeah, yeah. So relatively, you know, our temperate climate, our beautiful resources, our soil, our water is amazing here. Um, you know, sun, we cross our fingers, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is a, this is a great area. We have great soil, uh, and we have great farmers and, and chefs willing to, to do some awesome things with the local food. So, and look at that. It's a natural transition, <laughs> natural transition back over to Kristen. Yeah. Uh, so you what were you thinking, <laughs> well, uh, I grew up in a family who took food very seriously and that idea of exploring different things and 
cooking things maybe we weren't familiar with. Um, but it looks interesting. It, it looks fun, yummy. Let's figure it out. Um, is that the we Cuban a- roots. Yes. Well, okay. So my mom is Sicilian. Okay. So I've got fist pump. Re- yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I I. I always say I grew up like with the best of both food worlds Mm -hmm. um, because, um, you know, you have the amazing Italian, oh my gosh, all the meats and pastas and all that stuff. And then just pork and rice and veggies and all kinds of other great things um, from the Cuban side. And uh, I joke about how like my parents, they didn't really know about each other's food cultures when they got together. And so that was like an exploration of figuring out like, whoa, my mom had never seen yellow rice before in her life. And, you know, my dad didn't realize that pasta was just a course and that you're not supposed to eat five bowls of pasta (laughs) because now there's like roast beef and, you know, vegetables and all kinds of things coming. Um, So I grew up in a family that uh, really just embraces what food means at the table, you know, everyone's sitting around it. And um, we have a lot of actually professional uh, food people on my dad's side of the family. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I always say it's in the blood. Um, And so I have a few uncles, a couple of cousins who are all also uh, cooks, you know, working in kitchens and running kitchens. Um, and so I, well, I grew up, uh, I did a lot of food industry stuff, mostly in front of the house. And then um, when I got to Rochester, I had an awesome opportunity to work with um, an Italian chef and uh, learn how to make pasta and, you know, made pasta all day and just learned a lot of great things from her. And um so it's always been, I think, in my in my bloodstream, you know, to want to do this. And then getting connected with Joe Bean just seems it was just an awesome natural next step to this adventure. So Yeah, so I'm gonna take a step back and go on to my many tangents that we're gonna go on here. So you mentioned early on that your family takes food seriously. Oh yes. What what did what does that mean to you? Well, I think it means a lot of people in the kitchen. It means a lot of dishes on the pl- on the table. Um, and, oh, I don't want to sound like nutty about food. I just, it oh, means so on. much. come on. This is the best place for it. it. Yes. <laughs> so um, my dad and I, our favorite movie is The Big Night. Um, I've seen it. I only saw it once, but it is a fascinating movie it's really i feel like it embodies what we are (laughs) because it's about these italian brothers who plan this ridiculous meal and so the whole movie is about this one night of cooking and eating and you know gathering and so they have all these people come and um I feel like that's what my family is. And we've always taken food that serious <laughs> because it means, I, to me, food means a lot more than just f- even flavor or, you know, nutrition. It's about community. It's about, you know, all the ideas that like we, we have been, back. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like we've had lots of awesome conversations and I feel like 
those conversations happen over food all the time. You get to know people, you build relationship, you, um, you know, literally breaking bread, like that means something, you know? I, so I guess that's what I mean when I say we, we really take it to heart. <laughs> yeah. And I do, I do appreciate the fact that you like that movie. It's, it, it, it's one of the few, few food movies that is really focused on the food. For sure. It's yeah. not, you know, eat, pray, love, <laughs> which I'm sure many people love. I don't care. <laughs> I was um, going to say, come on, Chris. People are <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't say, care. wait a second. <laughs> but that, it, was a, it was a movie focused on the food and the yeah. craziness. Uh, and two great yeah. actors. Uh, there was uh, Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. Well, so there's that one crazy passion. Exactly. And so it's fun that it's like really talented guys. Um, but there's one scene where there's no dialogue and he's just making scrambled eggs. And I just feel like, oh, man, like that is awesome. And it's like and it's about them like they were arguing and they're making up in this scene. So he's cooking for him, you know, to be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's some eggs. <laughs> and I imagine now if we're being slightly stereotypical here, we've got Sicilian, we've got Cuban background, occasional arguments, a little bit of hotheads or you have a no, calmer. Really? Never. Oh, no, never. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was actually just having this conversation with someone about, um, people arguing or something. And, yeah. and I was like, they said, you know, I wasn't sure if they were arguing or not. I'm like, that's, you're never not sure about that. And <laughs> when I'm concerned with my, my family, you, I actually, I joke all the time being Cuban and Sicilian. I'm like, that blood is just crashing into my veins, you know, like they're just <laughs> crashing into each other. So I get, I mean, I'm loud all the time, you know, <laughs> happy, sad, angry, excited. It's just loud. It's but always it's loud. <laughs> yes. But it's and I think that's that's something that people, like you said before, you come out of the kitchen, you're meeting people, you've got this natural enthusiasm that I think comes across really easily to people because you're not guarded about it. True. Mm. <laughs> I can't pretend, guys. I can't Contagious. pretend. <laughs> well, and, you know, again, like being able to come out of the kitchen is such a cool privilege you know not a lot of cooks get to do that you know to actually bring their food out and um not that I'm like hanging around a table asking you know waiting for a compliment but <laughs> I want to know what people think I mean it is a really cool um way to you know like that interface of just saying like tell me what you're thinking you know you know, when we're talking about seasonality and local food and like, what are you excited about right now? Like, what do you want to see on a menu? Like, those are the conversations I really like to have um, because we are a local, you know, small business and we get to call our shots. You know, we get to say like, you know, some people are really excited about this right now. And Phil is a champ when I'm like, um, so is there any way you could find me, um, a bone-in smoked ham by Friday? Is that cool? And, and he's like, yep, mm -hmm, I got gotcha. you. I got you. <laughs> like, uh, so I've been thinking about, what do you think? Yep, I can find that. I can find that for you. So it is really cool to have that relationship. Yeah, and you do build relationships. That You're one of the best chefs I see that do come forward and out of the kitchen. That in, this, this industry, you know, local food, local chefs, we see a lot of them staying behind the back of the house. And if you do want to build that community that you do talk about so much, um, 
you know, part of it is you getting out in front of the your audience there and say, hey, I'm I'm your chef. I'm the one making this food for you. It came from this farm. It yeah. came from this business that brought you it from this farm. It's just full circle. And you guys do a great job at being able to, one, cook amazing food and set a great experience as far as the atmosphere of Joe Bean. But being able to come through and really telling that story uh, is yeah. another piece of it that I do think you nail. And we're going to we're gonna work together and collaborate on ways to do that even better in the future. I know it. Yes. Um, but, but even <laughs> right now, in being here is testament to that it's just it's just you guys are going above and beyond it joe bean so my hat is off to you still oh man yeah Yeah. well we've been (laughs) you know talking a lot about that very thing um headwater and good food collective have such a great opportunity of reaching so many people and um something i'm always excited about like on instagram when i see other restaurants posting food that's in my kitchen Mm -hmm. because i know it came through them i know that it came from the same farm um i was telling uh phil about like being at hearts and recognizing carrots like who recognizes a carrot no i recognize those carrots i peeled a million of them i know those (laughs) carrots um you know i was really excited about the watermelon radish i talk about them all the time and then to be able like to go on instagram and i see other restaurants using them and Mm -hmm. i'm like yes i know that those came from the same farm and so that's the really cool piece of headwater and then to know that all the people getting CSAs through the um, the Gufu Collective have the same stuff in their bags, you know, like it's it's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, so the watermelon radish that the GFC members posting is the same one you're getting in your kitchen the next day because they just got you know brought in exactly, um, and, and then, then it's on the tacos on Taco on Tuesday. Tacos. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Oh, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. So yeah, we're. We've got ourselves a love fest here, which is, which is a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go into two slightly more difficult questions. So first, dealing with the local industry. So as I've heard a few chefs say, local is local. Local is not always the best when it comes to quality of ingredients. What, what's been the hardest thing dealing with quality control with uh, local farms trying to get the best, not only saying, hey, you're getting a good product, but you're also getting, this is the best of this. You're getting the highest quality ingredients to get to your customers. Yeah, that's one piece of it. Some of A lot of our chefs, they're going to the market, Rochester Public Market. If you're not, um, there's there's part of why you a chef is what I would ask. Um, but part of the market scene is you're, in, you're there and these vegetables, yeah, might have been harvested yesterday. Then they came in a truck from two hours away. Uh, you don't know how hot it was sitting in the sun. The quality might not always be there by the time you buy that case and get it into your cooler. Uh, what we like to do and what we actually do is we use an online portal the week of, the week before, actually, we list what's fresh in the fields ready to get picked. So when Kristen sees something online, hey, there's a case of kale, that kale technically is still in the fields. She clicks her order. We send a pick list off to the farm. The farm harvests, bring it, brings it to the hub, and then within 24 to 48 hours, we've got it to the kitchen um, for the chef. So... Yes, we try to always put the best food forward. Yes, we say we're a top-quality food distribution company, um, but there have been times, and, and we will admit it, that we have to compost items or have the pig farmer pull up with his trailer to take some some less-than-savory produce. Uh, so that is a piece there, and I don't even know if I answered your question correctly or not. It's, it's a hard I question because... I around it, but... It, it, a little bit. It's, it's a hard question because it's... 
that's part of it. Mm. You're 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 allowing them to get the best product they can deliver to the chefs. And it's sometimes it's the hardest question is, you know, sourcing local is important, doing all this stuff, keeping it keeping ethically raised farms in the forefront. And then the hardest question is sometimes, is it the best product? Mm. You know, is it and maybe it's ethically the best. Does it taste the best? Yeah. And I think many times it does. I would I would argue if it if it's a great farm and they're dialed in, uh, there's nothing like getting getting something fresh out of the ground. One nutrient yeah. content, two flavor. Uh, you guys know that as well as anybody. It's it's going to be like we talked about the tomato earlier. There's a huge difference between the heirloom tomato that was picked the day before uh, versus the one that was shipped from from California and I love California don't get me wrong but sure. you know but it's very far away <laughs> yeah exactly it's picked unripe it's gassed on the way and it's it's not the tomato that you smile when you bite into um, so <laughs> so we all know the difference and, and yeah. it's all about and the model is about getting you know fresh local food yeah and we're only going to use we're going to try to use and we have a business to to uphold here only the fresh freshest and best ingredients otherwise we try to find secondary markets for them so whether it's breathe yoga for instance in pittsburgh who juices a lot of our secondary produce um, we're always trying to close the loop we have active composting uh, as well and again if the pig farmer wants to pull his trailer back up to the to the to the food hub and get an allotment of, of awesome local organic feed. Uh, why wouldn't you? So and then there's you're always ways. Loop with high quality pork at the end of the day. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then we're selling the pigs, and and then I, I text Kristen and ask her to take a belly every now and again, and <laughs> she's great with that. It's so. a hard knock life. <laughs> I know it's rough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking how. I mean, this doesn't really speak too much to the the quality, but I think. Um, Eating local and, you know, utilizing our local farmers, I think sometimes means changing our thought a little bit about like what it is we're looking for. You know what I mean? Like um, I I was just thinking about how like when we did our polenta, um, I used I made a veg sock and it. I accidentally threw in some purple carrots. I didn't realize because I had the rainbow carrots and I was just like, oh, yeah, I got all my stuff. And then I had bright purple broth. Oh, yeah. And I was like, okay, so now we're doing purple polenta. And <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so, I mean, but so then my thinking, I immediately panicked a little like, oh, no, somebody's going to look at this and be like, what are you doing? This is not polenta. <laughs> polenta is bright yellow, you know. But it's like, no, but when you buy local, when you buy a bag of local rainbow carrots and you don't realize that you just slipped a few purple carrots in there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but I think that about a lot of different things, like um, just kind of changing our thought a little bit about um, letting the food influence our creativity mm -hmm. and our menu instead of vice versa. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I, I it, it does. And I've, I've read this also about trying to cook vegetarian or cooking vegan. Sometimes restriction is allows you to be more inventive mm. or forces you to be more inventive. For sure. Yeah. Forces you to be more creative, to do new things, to try different stuff. Yeah. And I think that kind of plays into the whole local thing too. If you're trying to keep to that, it does force you to be more creative, be more resourceful. Yeah, um, believe me, as somebody who eats pork as its own food group, I <laughs> definitely have been excited to tackle uh, vegan fare. And um, 
our other cook, Patrick, is vegan, and he's been really cool uh, in, you know, coming up with fun ideas. Um, and, and, I mean, it started with me saying, like, so what do you want to see on a menu? And I've asked a few people that, and I got a few and more than a couple of answers of, well, more than just a portobello mushroom on a hamburger bun, you know. It's like, all right. So that's a challenge, you know, to say, okay, what can I do with all these awesome vegetables? And I have all these cool soy boy products. And, mm. like, I'm going to, you know, build some crazy sandwiches, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> well, I think people appreciate that, too, from a, from a vegetarian and vegan perspective. So many of the dishes are token dishes and are so boring. Like you said, a portobello mushroom on a bun can be delicious, but it's also how many times have you seen it? Exactly. And you feel pandered to, Mm. which is kind of depressing because I love great vegetables. I love great vegetarian food. Oh my gosh. And they are stars. You know what I mean? Like I always say, amazing ingredients need very little zhuzhing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like they just need to, you know, I, well, they make fun of me when, uh, somebody walks in the kitchen and I'm like talking to the pot. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, all right, guys, you're doing great. You look beautiful. <laughs> this is turning out fantastic. You have a beautiful, bright purple color. Exactly. No, like- why are you purple? Why? <laughs> oh, right. Because those carrots, yes, you're great. You're great too. <laughs> Kristen's losing her mind in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm t- I told you I take food seriously. <laughs> mm. so- but I mean, really, those beautiful uh, ingredients just need a little bit of love, you know, because they they do so much on their own. All the flavors is already there, you know. Yeah. So you you did come from commercial kitchens beforehand, you know, larger scale kitchens beforehand? Um, I did some catering as well. um, And I did uh, like chef table dinners I was um, an assistant to. And um, so we did, you know, like a lot of events that kind of thing, the same okay. sort of, you were, know. Were you here life. or were you elsewhere? Yeah, here in Rochester, back home in the Hudson Valley. I told you that I grew up in the Hudson Valley. I'm not sure, but. I grew up in New Paltz, New York, uh, okay. which is just about an hour north of New York. And uh, we were actually just talking about this. Um, it's a tiny little hippie town, and it's at the base of Mohonk Mountain. So you get the best of, like, outdoor, you know, adventures and it's i say i grew up in the middle of apple orchards and it's surrounded by apple orchards would you use the term enclave a hippie yeah. enclave a little hippie, oh. well okay yes a little it is it's <laughs> definitely oh man there's a lot of uh dreadlocks and patchouli walking around new Paltz. yeah some some exper- <laughs> experienced hippies around. oh yes it's my heart i mean i love new Paltz so much um it's you know a little too small for me now i i love Rochester. I've lived in a few other bigger cities, and um, I, I, but New Paltz really is my heart, and they have a great food culture as well. You know, it's it's just really, uh, again, being in the middle of farms, and you have all that awesome local food. Hmm. So you said you worked in the commercial area as well. What what was the I'm not going to say the worst experience because I, I always like hearing some of the not horror stories, but like <laughs> what what drove you in the direction of going towards more of the local stuff and focusing on this kind of thing? Was there were you experience that drove you that way or were some of your mentors pushing you that way? Or Yeah, I feel like I've always been surrounded by people who think that way. Maybe okay. I'm super fortunate 
um, in that way. Um, also, you know, working in restaurants, you're always surrounded by other cultures, which is one of my mm. favorite things. And I think um, that really pushed me also to explore different cuisines and like even what you were talking about um with the corn and you know like you you learn about different food cultures and um you know through people from uh other countries and they have all these other you know influences you maybe didn't even know about and so i think uh learning about a lot of those things and um experimenting and learning how to cook all like amazing things like that um I guess that that was kind of the biggest influence of uh, diving into, you know, food where you are, you know, like what you can create around you. Yeah, because I, I think food food where you are is can be still very diverse. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I came from a very non-diverse background of food. Hmm. And, and look at you now. I know. it's, it's <laughs> my, my dad still shakes his head at me. He's like, how did I create? A weird gourmet like you. I was going to say, you're always <laughs> looking for the next newest, weirdest oh, thing yeah. you've I'm, never tried before. I'm always pushing pushing farther out. And he's like, how did this happen? How did we make you? Um, <laughs> but that's that's why I, I did find that interesting when you mentioned before where, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Your your dad had never seen yeah, he had never the yellow rice. Eaten, no, my mom had never seen yellow, yellow rice. rice before. Right. I'd never seen yellow rice until after college. That's awesome. But then somebody showed, taught you. Did you learn how to make it? Uh, no, I've never, I've never made it. <laughs> I've, I've never All right, actually, we're going to have to have like I've a never actually cooked, cooking session. <laughs> I've never actually cooked any, like, um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Puerto Rican, Dominican foods. Um, awesome. I don't have a ton of Cuban food experience, actually, because really we don't have a lot here. Yeah. It's actually pretty limited. The yeah. worst, the best I've had is in, you know, I had some in Florida, not in Miami, unfortunately, but Uh-oh. it was, and I know this is going to sound terrible, it was outside of Orlando, but, wow. but it was actually surprisingly really good. And, but did you go to Palacio de los Hugos in Miami? I've never been to Miami. Oh, oh, you weren't go. in Miami. I thought no, you were I, saying no, that you in, didn't have Orlando. good food in Miami. I was like, that can't be correct. <laughs> no, 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 no. no I'm, I just never been. Oh, okay. And I had yes, some good yes. stuff outside of Orlando. I found a, what they thought was, you know, what they have is the best Cuban restaurant in the area. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is this is fascinating. I was really happy to have tried it. Yeah. And learned more about it. And I think it's one of those things that the differentiation between, you know, the different island cuisines, between, oh gosh, between Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, Jamaican, you can find a lot of similarities, but the differences I find to be very interesting. Yeah, it's really cool um, because I think a lot of people do think of it all as one sort of thing like oh you guys eat a lot of rice right (laughs) we do we do eat a lot of rice (laughs) but you're absolutely right with every island is a totally different um feel and some are super spicy uh cuba is not you know we tend to eat much sweeter kind of things um a lot of savory you know black beans is a huge staple and actually i um thinking about the menu at joe bean i've been sort of wanting to push that envelope a little of like, what is breakfast acceptable? Because I'm a huge savory <laughs> person. Like, oh, for sure. Like, I know everybody loves pancakes and French toast. Um, but I mean, I would eat, you know, 
a pan cubano for breakfast. You know, oh, I would dig absolutely. into some pork on pork for for breakfast. Um, so I actually have been thinking about doing um, black beans and white rice uh, as something for brunch. And I was kind of batting that around with some people. Like, do you think people would order rice and beans for you know? brunch like 11 in the morning i hope so yes i hope so <laughs> well you know what it's it's also and i've seen this at other places um and i think one of the contexts was it was at a fancy fixed price meal place where you got you know 15 courses but they're all tiny and at the end they served you all the fried rice you can eat if you wanted to be full right that's hysterical which i, I thought <laughs> was a scary. genius idea i forget the place and I, I wish i could give credit but I've mentioned it to other people, and I, I loved that idea. And, you know, the rice and beans doesn't have to be a main course. Right. It right. can be an accessory to yeah, other things and say, hey, sure. you're not serving huge portions. You're serving good portions to people with local food and everything else. But if you want more, you get delicious rice and beans to fill you up <laughs> if you want. It's the spin yes. on the unlimited salad and breadsticks model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, I, I do love that idea. Just something simple. And you say, hey, this is... These are two main ingredients that are seasoned great. They yeah, taste oh fantastic. Gosh. The rice isn't an afterthought. Yeah, mm. oh Because rice goodness. is not an afterthought. Yes. My, oh man, my dad and my grandfather both have uh, definitely uh, very strong opinions about rice. <laughs> and my, I mean, I remember being a kid and my grandfather would like, want to just storm out of a restaurant if they brought him parboiled <laughs> rice. He's like, this is, what is this? I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, no, yeah, I mean, because he knows, you know, he knows it, he knows what's great, and he knows that this is not it. <laughs> how many cultures is it important? Exactly. And how often is it ignored here as a product? Right, because rice, it is like a side dish or something like that. Right, it's, it's, it's the starch. It's not yeah. a thing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I really respect when I find a chef or a cook that's respecting the little things. And you're not ignoring, rice is not a thing to be ignored. It's a thing to be uh. celebrated and turned into something that's more than itself. Or it tastes great on its own. You yes, know, it's it respected by itself. It great on its own, yeah. It shouldn't be just left alone and just cooked in water and left. Everything yeah. should be seasoned. Everything should be treated as a great piece of a as a piece of a whole. Mm. Yeah, it is funny, actually. A lot of uh, my family members have, like, we have uh, debates on cooking rice, on, like, what's the best way to cook rice. Those are the moments where I'm like, do other people have these conversations? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we're all standing in the kitchen, like, yelling at each other about, no, cover it, don't cover it, add water, don't add water. What did you, did you saute it already? How much oil did you use? And I'm like, mm. Do other people really talk like this? Did you toast the rice? <laughs> you can't toast the rice. Exactly. It's like everybody has a different idea. But then, of course, at the end of the day, Lala is always correct. That's my grandmother. Of she, course. Rules she, the roost. Yes. She's the one who has the final say on what the best <laughs> preparation is. Veto power. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> is, is, there one, is there one thing you learned from her that you can throw out as a cooking tip? You know, honestly, it really is, ugh, this is going to sound cheesy, but cook from your heart. Because all the cousins, I have oh, like 15 cousins on my dad's side of the family. And um, 
we all cook, like whether it's professionally or just like super excited about cooking. Um, everyone has cooking skills. And we always laugh about how when like Lala is our food 911. If we don't know how to do something, it's like call her up. And what do you think I should do? How should I do this? And she always starts with, it's really easy. You're just gonna. <laughs> and so she never, like, she has measurements, but it's literally like a handful of this or two two pieces of this or whatever. And so she says, well, you have to make it your own. Like, this is what I use and this is what I do. But you got to, like, cook with your own love and make it your own your own dish. So I think that's really where my, my love of... Um, preparing food not just cooking food but you know preparing it for people really came from is that she always cooked that way and I mean I have these very distinct memories of walking into her house like just smells like pork and garlic and you know and 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 that was our childhood you know yeah and those are two of the greatest smells when put together (laughs) seriously (laughs) Makes me want to cook carnitas right now. Yes. Oh my goodness. I, I did some recently. I'm not sure. Stuff. I'm not sure you'd approve of my technique, but I I, I sous vide. I did a sous vide carnitas. Oh. Well, you know, you're speaking my language it. a little. Okay. I mean, I'm well, definitely. Of course, I crisp it up. I mean, yes. come on. There has I mean, to be texture. Sous vide. My dad really got me to be a sous vide nerd. I love it. I used yeah. to make fun of him actually <laughs> when he was like <laughs> suiting everything, and uh, and it is really an amazing way to it's cook. It's cool. Yeah, but yeah, you gotta you gotta definitely finish it a different way. But oh <laughs> yeah, you need the crunch. I mean, there's nothing more important on meat than getting than developing that Maillard reaction. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna use the word caramelized because it's not correct. You say that one more time. You can't say it's caramelized because there's you're not caramelizing any sugars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but you're making it delicious. You're getting that crunch. You're getting that extra flavor. But yeah. man, I just loved putting it in there and just letting it sit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an amazing way to to cook meat, especially you know, uh, because it's controlled and yeah. and you can pack all the flavor, you know, vacuum whatever you want in there with it. And yeah. so it is really awesome. And I'm gonna wrap Phil back in here. Oh. I didn't. No, I didn't necessarily get it from one of your farmers, but I bought it. I had a local pork shoulder. I took the fat off. I rendered the fat so I could cook it in its own fat. Okay. I seasoned it. <laughs> and then I did all that stuff, but I was using all the, I was using every piece of it that I could. That's awesome. Because, you know, I had it. You know, why, why would I add extra fat in there when I can render its own fat off and try and cook it in there? Right. Yep. You know? You're talking my language again. We do the full animal utilization all the time. I feel like I say that those words too much, but <laughs> when you're using the, the actual fat from the same animal that the cut came from, uh, yeah. it makes all the difference in, in your flavor profiles, uh, you name it. For sure. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to have to get in touch with you and see if I can get some pigtails and some other things. We can do oh, pigtails. Yes. We just started listing trotters. We, oh, we can do it geez. all. I've got all the chicken necks and chicken oh, feet. We, we do the whole animal nose to tail. I, I was thinking about <laughs> doing some doing some ramen stock at some point, and I need some chicken feet. Exactly. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I need some now chicken you're feet and other stuff. So. I yeah. was telling Phil, like, oh, there's chicken feet on the portal. <laughs> and Kathy immediately is like, what are you going to do with those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because ch- chicken feet are one of those weird things. Right. Because it's it's a pure texture thing. 
Because there's yeah. very little flavor in a chicken foot. Well, I mean, it, not if you're making stock with it. Not or if you're making so, stock. I mean, it's one of the key. Oh, man, that makes Yeah, take awesome the nails stock. off, but... But there's a lot of flavor and there's a lot of texture. There's all the gelatin, all the good stuff. Yeah. Collagen. Yep. Tons of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's great for making stocks. Oh. Yeah. So. For sure. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. So, Phil, I'm going to give the last word to you on anything else. You Do you have anything else in your notes you want to talk about? I've got a couple of key points. Uh, I will just say, uh, you know, my generation coming up and, and generations in the future, it, I can only stress and put a focus on being passionate about what you want to see change in the world. Don't look out uh, and try to think about what job you want to work on when you're graduating high school or college. It's what problems do you want to fix and then attack it that way. Uh, in the sustainability sense, if you have a passion for making this world a better place, you know my one-liner is think globally, act locally, and I'll leave it with that. Very cool. Kristen, do you have a last word? You don't maybe have to be as prepared know, as Phil it's, was. Well, it's, it's a beautiful sales pitch. It's so great. No, I think it's it's amazing. Um, I think you know I'm I'm just really excited about the direction that the food scene is taking in Rochester, and I'm really excited and privileged to be a part of it. Uh, I know Joe Bean is really proud to be a part of uh, you know working with places like. Uh, Good Food Collective and Headwater and being able to use amazing, beautiful uh, produce and animals from right here in our city. And I'm looking forward to helping educate people on that and what that means to to eat, to really eat locally and and be a part of your community. Very cool. So where can people find you, Kristen? Well, I'm usually in the kitchen at Jovine. Um, on Instagram, if you follow, if if you you're not following Joe Bean yet, you should check out uh, Joe Bean Coffee Bar. Um, I am Senorita Gordita on Instagram, and I'm always posting pictures of our food. Phil, where yeah. can people find you? Headwater Food Hub on Instagram as well as online there, Headwater Food Hub. Uh, my personal moniker is Philly B from the ROC. If you <laughs> nice. want to find me, it's pretty simple. Very cool. Yeah. And you can find me at Stromie, S-T-R-O-M-I-E, on Twitter or Instagram. Well, thanks guys for coming over. This was a blast. I'm glad we got a chance to spend a little bit of time talking local food today while the weather's starting to turn and people are getting excited. Oh, man. The calm good things before the are, storm. Yes, good things are coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this is the uh, exciting and dangerous part of the year for you guys. Yeah, it is. Well, the storage crops are, you know, starting to peter out this time of the year, and we're waiting for fresh greens. So it's, it's at that, you know, make or break period. We're trying to line stuff up for awesome farmers to, to get in the, the kitchens of awesome chefs. So Sounds like Rochester. This is make or break. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you.